Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this is a special summer episode. Rather than having one of our normal discussions, we have decided to post a recording of a recent ECFR event, the launch of the new updated version of the paperback of my book, The Age of Unpeace, where I am joined by Fiona Hill, who is a senior fellow at the Centre on the United States and Europe in the Foreign Policy Programme at Brookings. She recently served as Deputy Assistant to the President and Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs at the National Security Council. And she is also author of the memoir, There is Nothing for You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century, and co-author of Mr Putin, Operative in the Kremlin published by the Brookings Institution in 2015. Fiona joined me for an absolutely fascinating discussion, which was chaired by Jason Cowley, who is the editor-in-chief of the New Statesman magazine and author of the book, Who Are We Now? We have a fascinating discussion looking at the war in Ukraine, how it happened, what it means for global order, and trying to explain the future of geopolitics by using some of the ideas in the Age of Unpeace. You can now buy a paperback of the book from Penguin on their website or on all good bookshops, and we'll put a link to uh, allow you to buy that, as well as Fiona Hill and Jason Cowley's book on our website at ecfr.eu. But for now, all I can do is invite you to sit back and listen. And I hope that you enjoy what was a truly fascinating discussion. I want to start with the kind of with the moment we're, that we're in. And Michael Howard, the, the historian, said that war has been around for millennia, but peace is a modern invention. And he defined peace and not simply as the absence of war, but a, a different kind of condition, which is governed by powerful norms, laws, institutions, which was what he, what he meant when he talked about it as a modern invention. And since the Russian invasion of Ukraine on the 24th of February, Europeans have, have been gripped by the fact that this era of peace is over. The argument of my book is that although the 24th of February was obviously a, a huge psychological watershed and a, a shock to all of us, that the idea of peace had actually ended well before then. And I think it would be wrong to see the war in Ukraine, tragic though it is, as, as yet another episode in this age-old alternation um, between war and peace, uh, you know, as in the Russian novel. That part of the, the point of my book is that if, if Tolstoy were alive today, he wouldn't be able to write his masterpiece because the boundary between war and peace has, has been broken down uh, fundamentally. And the book is really about how the growing connectivity that is the, the ties of technology, information, and the globalization of trade, travel, and ideas, which have reshaped our world, have actually helped to erode that border between war and peace. And it means that even when the fighting, uh, the hottest phase of fighting in Ukraine ends, I don't think that we're going to go back to a period of peace. I think we're going to be in a different sort of world. And as you said, the, the sort of simple idea behind it is that the connections which knit the world together are also driving it apart. And the book tries to explain that in two ways. Firstly, by showing how connectivity 
gives people a motive for, for conflict. And I describe how it's spurred on the increased polarization of our societies. It's fostered uh, an epidemic of envy as people no longer compare themselves with their neighbors or their parents, but with the most privileged people in the world, which means that there is a kind of floating sense of grievance, which is attached to, to their daily experiences. And it's also created a sense of, of a loss of control, the fact that so much that's going on is outside of their, uh, of their realm of, uh, of control. And that is creating a new kind of politics, which is centered around identity, around grievances, and about taking back control from international organizations, from foreigners, from elites. And in various ways, that has, has created a, a motive for, for, for conflict and has led to a much more um, fractious uh, world. And in the, the kind of new forward of the book, I look at how some of these dynamics have played out in Ukraine's relations with both Russia and, and Europe and how they've contributed to the uncertainty which made Putin initially invade Ukraine in, in 2014 and which I think spurred him on uh, in this war. But the other thing which I try and do is to show how connectivity provides us with a new arsenal of weapons to fight each other. And the war in Ukraine, I think, shows how wars today are not only fought with planes and tanks and shells, but also through sanctions, through supply chains, through financial flows, the flows of people, information, digital and, and energy. And the metaphor I use to, to explain geopolitics today is, is that of a, a loveless marriage where the couple can't stand each other's company, but are unable to get divorced. And as with all unhappy couples, it's the things which brought us together in the good times that become the ways, the means that we use to hurt each other in, in the bad times. When the marriage goes wrong, it's about who gets the, the, the pet or the holiday home. Uh, and above all, the children become big, a, a battleground which is used to hurt and, and manipulate uh, the, the different partners. But in geopolitics, it's all of the, the things that bind us together, every single facet of globalization, which was meant to bring us together from trade and migration to infrastructure and the internet, as well as the solutions to, to global problems like COVID and climate change, which can be manipulated, turned into tools of power and, and even uh, influence. So if you start looking at the war through the prism of this book, I think it both explains some of the reasons that we got to where we are today, but also a lot of the ways that both the Russians and the, the West and other powers are, are thinking about how to fight it. And some of the ways that even though it's not a global war, it is having global consequences. And I think there are sort of four big assumptions about how the world works, which um, we're being forced to, to rethink. Because I think if we are entering a period of unpeace and if the idea of peace is over, that firstly means that we need to, to rethink the whole idea of our economy and there's going to be a new economic model emerging. We used to see interdependence as a guardrail against conflict and now increasingly we see it as a vulnerability. And we are all finding ourselves unwitting warriors and victims in the new conflicts that are going on, whether it's through our energy bills, food prices, information warfare. Uh, but it's not just that the economy is a weapon. I think what we're increasingly seeing is, is that we have a wartime economy. You know, so in the age of unpeace, security is more important than, than efficiency. People think a lot more about diversification and are worried about dependency. You have new buzzwords like friendshoring going on to, to talk about how you mitigate against supply chains and being blackmailed by others. And also you see 
globalization giving way to regionalization as people try and, and, and surround themselves by, by friends and to think about their, their neighborhoods. The second thing which I think is changing fundamentally is, is our model of security. It's not just that hard power is back and that we're going to spend hundreds of billions of, of pounds of extra defense and that the peace dividend in Europe is over and that our security is going to be defended more by a balance of power than by treaties and, 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 and institutions and norms. I think there's a much wider idea of what the battlefield is. And in the book, I look at seven new rules for exercising power in the interconnected world. Russia has, has famously been a hybrid warrior and a pioneer of this way of working for a long time. But in the future, I think all countries are going to have to think less about being attractive models and more about how to become hybrid warriors that can both defend themselves from attacks to others, but also rethink how they exercise power on the world stage. The third big change is about the, the idea of competition in this world. Lots of people talk about how we're entering a new Cold War and talk about a world which is divided between democracies and autocracies. But I don't think that's right. I think whereas the old Cold War was split by uh, different ideologies that had an idea about a common future, the age of connected unpeace is more split around identities that are focused on the past. And one of the biggest sources of tension are the different ideas that we have about, about connectivity and how that changes our identities. And in the book, I spend a long time trying to define how different powers are thinking about that. I spent some time on Russia, but the most time spent on these three new empires of connectivity that think about the world in totally different ways, the US, China, and the European Union. The kind of fourth idea which I want to end with is that the most fundamental thing that we need to rethink is the idea of order. So even when the hottest phase of fighting ends, it's unlikely to be followed by a new European security order. It's just possible that there'll be some sort of treaty that people will look at where the borders of different countries lie. I don't think that's necessarily the most likely scenario. But even if that happens, a peace agreement might force countries to remove their troops, but it can't do anything to prevent cyber attacks, disinformation campaigns, energy cutoffs, um, informal economic sanctions, or even the movements of, of so-called little green men. And I think that try as we might to uncouple our economies and our financial systems from Moscow, the fact that we share a large landmass with Russia means that we're not going to be able to seal ourselves off completely from Russia. And that's why when the war in Ukraine ends, it's going to be followed by a period of unpeace rather than peace. I should probably end there because I'd love to hear what, what Fiona has to say and to take part in a wider discussion with you. OK, Mark, that's that's very comprehensive and a succinct summary of the big ideas in the book. And they are extremely big ideas. Fiona, over to you, please. Thank you very much for having me. And I want to also make a plug for this really fantastic book. And I mean, it's a very handsome paperback as well and uh, a really great read. You can read it in a day. <laughs> so I think it just exactly um, that very point that uh, Jason started with about the FT saying it's a short but important book. I mean, you know, we're in between, um, you know, you're basically watching Wimbledon. You can pick up this book and, and, and get through it. And, and really, um, actually, the image of sport becomes very important here as well. Because, you know, here in the United States, uh, we're thinking about the fate, you know, particularly in the last few days of the Women's uh, National Basketball Association star, the WNBA star, Brittany Griner, um, who has been uh, wrongfully detained um, in Russia. Um, and, you know, also illustrating that sport is usually one of those interconnections that we tend to think 
is something that binds us together. You know, we think about Wimbledon and all of the players from all over the world who have been playing there. Of course, there's been kind of questions about how do you deal with Russian sports teams and sports figures in this context. But we've usually thought about the sanctity of sport, not the weaponization of sport. And it's very evident for anybody watching this, um, you know, terrible episode of uh, state hostage taking that now sport um, is being used just in the same way that information, cyber, energy, food, commodities. I mean, Mark, um, you touched upon that, but I mean, that that um, implications of connectivity, the risk of famine uh, with the United Nations and others uh, coming out and warning against this is also underscoring every point that you made um, here in the book. And I think that um, that um, important point that you're talking about, about the way that connectivity has enabled a change in warfare um, is extraordinarily important. And that, that point you also make in the forward, and you've just made now in the overview, that in many respects, the era of peace that seemed to have defined uh, Europe since the end of the Cold War and really had been um, the secret uh, to the rise of Europe, uh, really underpinning one of your earlier books about why um, you know, Europe would dominate the 21st century. I mean, the reason that you said that was fairly obvious at the time. Uh, was because of uh, you know the the fact that Europe was enjoying what seemed to be a period of peace that are now enabled to focus on prosperity uh, through economic growth, but also then to exert itself diplomatically because Europe was not the source of problems and of conflicts. Europe was actually in this unique position, or so it seemed, you know, for several decades, where it could actually um, try to intervene in a very positive way to bring about the kind of the broader rule one hoped um, of institutions and uh, patterns of good governance. But as you say, and as you know, you, you talk in the book, I think with great frankness about how your own views evolved over time. And, you know, I, I, I share the, you know, the same sentiments and, uh, you know, feelings that you describe so clearly in the book, all of us who had, you know, some optimism and hope for a very different future, you know, had to um, live up uh, to the fact or kind of, let's just say, wise up to the fact and accept the fact that things had, uh, had changed. And, and as you point out also uh, in the forward and in the course of the book, they change a lot earlier than, you know, perhaps uh, we realized, you know, perhaps even um, 20 odd years ago when Vladimir Putin, you know, first came into the presidency in Russia, promising to make Russia great again. Uh, and certainly, um, you know, with a very different view as we saw over time about Russia's role in that uh, European space. And we've seen um, Ukraine in the crosshairs um, of Putin and um, uh, Russia for quite some time, as you readily point out. You talk, um, you know, in the book very vividly about 2004, Yushchenko, the president of Ukraine at the time, being poisoned with dioxin. We could have added that to, to, to the, you know, the panoply of war by many means, not just other means, that Russia has conducted not just against Ukraine. I think the important point is that we're in a kinetic phase of the war now in terms of the hot war, the military conflict that we usually think about. But we've been in a state of war, as you've said, with those blurring of those boundaries for quite some time, certainly going back uh, to at least 2004 um, in the wake of uh, the Russian, so uh, the Ukrainian rather, so-called um, Orange Revolution and uh, Russia's uh, reactions to it. And I, I think, you know, we actually could probably even question whether we really were in the state of peace that we thought we were at the end um, of uh, the Cold War, when we did still have a lot of contestation um, of the outcomes um, of, uh, of, that, uh, of that period. I mean, in many respects, one thing that you don't touch upon in so much detail, you know, in the book is that we've kind of seems to have gone back to earlier periods 
in um, uh, European and world's history. But I mean, you make that implicit in any case in your argument, you know, the, the era of mercantilism, you know, China itself often justifies its different vision of the world um, on the basis that it was subjugated uh, to so much pressure during the mercantilist era in European politics, gunboat diplomacy, the, the opium wars, uh, you know, the uh, forcible um, seizure and leasing of, uh, as the China would put it, of um, Chinese territory, the 99-year lease on Hong Kong, you know, for example, you know, the seizure of uh, territory by other adjacent countries, including um, actually Russia, um, in the 1860s and in you know, the kind of period uh, afterwards. And China, in a way, seeing that after the, what its so-called century of humiliation at the hands of European imperial and colonial powers, that it now has a way of doing things in a similar fashion, but in a different way in the 21st century. And as you rightly point out, sees the world in a very different way, just as Russia does uh, from uh, the United States and uh, the European Union. I do actually uh, want to make, um, just to wrap up here, because I think it would be much more instructive for all of us to be able to engage in a discussion uh, with the audience and other participants, because there's so much to cover here. This book is extraordinarily rich. Uh, to um, emphasize the points that you make uh, towards the end of the book in um, your recommendations, you point out that um, you know one of our real uh, problems um, in this kind of larger global system, one of the issues that really uh, propelled forward Brexit in uh, the UK context was a feeling that people um, did not have consent in the way that they were being governed or uh, that there was a loss of that sort of sense of consultation and consent in politics. And you talk um, uh, you know, in some depth about how we might uh, get back towards this. And I think that that's also at the essence of what we're seeing in Ukraine, just to uh, briefly wrap up here. The Ukrainians are not consenting to being uh, basically told that they're Russians. They haven't been consulted you know, by Vladimir Putin in his kind of view about restoring in some uh, respects the Russian imperial territory. This is a war on Putin's part of control of a territory and people. You mentioned in uh, the um, uh, new uh, forward about you know Ukrainians um, you know traditionally you know being the Cossacks you know what we used to call the freebooters the people who didn't want to live under centralized authority and that's still the case in Ukraine now and what we're seeing in the war in Ukraine is really a conflict for the right to have a civically defined nation. The Russians you know refer to the Ukrainians as Nazis because the Ukrainians are refusing to identify themselves as Russians. Uh, and, and Russians as a kind of an idea about control um, over people, not being consulted, not giving consent. It's all about control rather than those um, issues. And Ukraine itself is a rather horizontal networked society. And it is one of a multiplicity of identities, although there's now an overarching Ukrainian identity now fixated in the language because of the way that Russia has manipulated the Russian language. It still remains the case. You can have someone like Zelensky who is a Russian speaking Jew, you know, from a very particular background in Ukraine, who can be just as Ukrainian as a Crimean Tatar, uh, who has also been, uh, you know, denied the right to be Ukrainian uh, by Russians or a Pole or a Romanian or a Lithuanian or an American or a Brit or a German, you know, who um, basically decides to be in Ukraine to become part of a larger civic nation. So I think that that element of uh, your book is also important to think about in the context of Ukraine. And as we think about how we deal with what is likely to be a long period of unpeace uh, with Ukraine as well, how to be able to 
restore that kind of sense of sense of consultation and consent in Ukraine itself and um, in uh, Europe at large is going to be very important. But I just want to commend you again on just really a fabulous book and hope that in between Wimbledon, people will pick this up and read it. Thank you, Fiona. That's terrific. Really, really, really superb. Um, interesting what you say there at the end about um, Ukrainian sense of Ukrainian nationhood being forged in the furnace of war and it's and it's evolving and developing before our very eyes into something that's civic and plural and encourages compound identities and it's nothing to do with deep deep ethnic roots something very complex and modern and very interesting and welcoming to a multiplicity of um, identities and ethnicities well one thing I'm that struck me in the book. I like the form of the book. I like, I like, it's not just um hard political analysis. There's some reportage, there's there's travelogue, and there's also memoir. There's some very personal touches. And you write about your feelings of being shipwrecked, so metaphorically shipwrecked in 2016 because of the Brexit, the vote for Brexit in the United Kingdom, and the election of Donald Trump in, in the United States late, later that same year. I mean, two huge shocks to progressives and liberals. But what was it, Mark, do you think, that you didn't, you didn't understand about the forces in play? And what, what was it about liberal overreach that led so many liberals to, to being finding themselves so, so disenchanted, indeed even shipwrecked? And, and you say in the book, I've become uneasy with the idea that we can ever resume progress towards one world. But wasn't that very journey itself a delusion? But I'll allow you to, to answer. I suppose the thing which was the, the big shock to me is that intellectually, I was aware of the fact that globalization and integration was divisive and that they were winners and losers. Um, and, you know, in Seattle, for example, there were lots of protests against globalization. There was an anti-globalization movement. But the, the big shock about Brexit for me was the way that different people could live through exactly the same trends and have such fundamentally different ways of understanding and explaining what, what had gone on. And we're all products of our of our history and our geography and our upbringing. And my story, which I tell in the book is somebody, my mother is a German Jew. Her family was largely exterminated during the war. She was born in hiding during um, the second world war where they're being hidden in a convent. And, and it was a mirror, it's a miraculous story. My childhood where there is a sort of overarching European identity because my father's British, his father fought in the First World War, his first memories of being evacuated as an eight-year-old and not seeing his parents for two years, uh, which was a searing uh, experience for, for him to go through. And, you know, they then come together in a family, they have an identity, and it didn't matter that uh, whether I had a British passport or a German passport or a French passport. And all of a sudden, there was a completely different way of thinking about our identity, about the way that our continent works. And my life was built on this extraordinary process of coming together, of integration, of travel, of food getting better, everything becoming better, only opportunities and positive things. And then to, to, to in 2016, during the Brexit referendum, what you saw was that the reason that the Remain side was so bad at making the case is all the things they were proudest of. That in the old days, Euroscepticism used to be about the things that didn't work about the European project. 
It was the democratic deficit, the common agricultural policy, fraud, all the stuff which was patently not very good and which needed to be improved on. What was a shock, I think, to pro-Europeans was that the things that people really hated was the stuff they were the proudest of. It was the creation of a single market where goods could flow across the continent, of a single currency where you didn't have to change uh, currencies when you went from one country to another, of freedom of movement, the fact that anybody could go and work in places in, other, in any other country. What happened was that these things were all very good for Europe in the aggregate. We were a lot richer. Many people made lots of money. Many people benefited from it. But at the same time, because of that, people were blind to the fact that a substantial minority of the population was losing out, or at least felt it was losing out in relative terms, and did absolutely nothing to manage the downsides of it, to redistribute the, the benefits from it. And the freedom of movement debate in the UK, for me, was the kind of ultimate symbol of this sort of tragedy, where... They thought about it so little that, you know, the British government, when we joined the EU, didn't introduce any safeguards. They thought 13,000 people would come over the borders when one and a half million people came. Well, that, well, that, was, in, um, that was in 2004, wasn't it? After the EU exactly. to include the Eastern states. And that, the British government didn't impose transition controls yeah. on like, the Germans, the Italians, the French and so on. Yeah, we were, the, we were one of only three member states that didn't introduce. But what was... Mind-blowing is one, you know, people complain about the Iraq war intelligence failures, but getting, it, you you know, thinking 13,000 people come and one and a half million people coming so is a kind of mistake of much kind of greater proportions. Yeah. There were no attempts made to work out who was coming into the country. Where I grew up, when I grew up in Brussels, we had to register with the local town hall so they knew who was living where and where different people were and they could make sure that you had more doctors or more school places if large numbers of people came in. The British government had no clue about where anyone was going. It was, it was, it was, it was elite complacency and in many ways an administrative failure okay. is what you're saying. But what I want to get to is yeah. you then embarked upon a journey. You began to reevaluate your positions, and think more. Think about the world as it was post-Brexit. We've got Donald Trump in the White House, who has a very particular view about China. He has a very strategic, well, if you can call it strategic or not, he has a very strong position on what he wants America to be, a kind of America first form of, form of economic nationalism. He's got Steve Bannon advising him in the early days, who has a distinct theory of history. So what, what did you then do? What happened to ch change, your, change your way of thinking? I'll let Fiona talk about all of those amazing things in, in Trump White House. But for me, what, what was having realised, because I think I was right about all of the, the impacts on me, my life compared to my mum's life or my dad's life or my grandparents' life is immeasurably better. Everything was great. But at the same time that there is a sort of dark side where millions of people, 52% of people in the country that I live in, felt so differently about what had gone on. So I then started to wonder whether that was true of other things. And you start asking these big questions. You know, one of the things I talked about before was how this glorious period of peace that we were enjoying and imagining, maybe it wasn't really peace. Maybe there was actually a dark side and there'd been a lot of violence there, which we've been blind to. Because what happened, I think, for me then, but it happened in, for other people in other ways, is that the light in the room changes. And you suddenly see all sorts of things that were hiding in plain sight, but hadn't been visible to you beforehand yeah. and hadn't been dealt with. And I think that elite complacency you're talking about 
was very true about migration, but it was true about all sorts of other things. And that is fundamentally sapping the consent for the sort of model of, of, of a frictionless, free, united world which we were building. And um, there are lots of bad things that, that, that we haven't dealt with, that we haven't faced up to. Lots of people who felt that they were being, having their, their futures dictated by forces beyond their control, that they were unhappy about all sorts of things. And some of these things are particularly difficult for people like myself on the sort of progressive side of politics to deal with. Identity is the most difficult one where, you know, the left is, is traditionally quite allergic to talking about the na about national identity and patriotism and things like that. And that, those are some of the things that that um, were were most negatively affected in people's minds. And because elites were not willing to talk about any of those issues from identity to migration to the, the, the kind of inequality from globalization, other people filled the vacuum. And I think that's really why we got a different sort of politics, which has looked like it was going to become dominant around 2016. Yeah. Fiona, um, I, I mentioned, um, obviously mentioned Donald Trump, and I'd, I'd, I'd also like, like to speak about Putin and, and, and the terrible war in Ukraine. But what was it that Trump understood and propelled him into the White House about, uh, about the forces in play? Did he understand something fundamental about feelings of mass disaffection in the United States and also about United, the role of the United States, particularly in relation to China? Yeah, absolutely he did. I mean, he understood all of those things that, uh, you know, Mark has just laid out there that other, uh, you know, elites uh, were uh, not, not just complacent about, perhaps sometimes even ignorant about. I mean, you know, I, the, the book that I just wrote, um, you know, very much like Mark, you know, lays out my own perspective on this, which is, you know, very different. Although, actually, I would say that my own family embraced the idea of Europe for a variety of reasons, but they were also people who suffered uh, in many respects from these larger forces of uh, globalization, you know, at various points. My own hometown in the north of England voted 61% to uh, leave the European Union, not because of ideas of independence and freedom, but the idea that benefits uh, to them from uh, globalization or from being part of the EU were not flowing, that there was not that redistribution that Mark was, was talking about. And that previously, where it might have been possible for people in, engaged in construction, and Mark you know, talks about this at actually one point in the book, and it's spot on, people engaged in construction in the north of England to go and work in London, they found themselves displaced by Ukrainians at some point later on, you know, kind of, but in the meantime, Poles and Bulgarians and Romanians who were sending money back to their home countries, whereas they wanted to, you know, take money back to the north of England. And, you know, that basically feeling that so many parts of Britain outside of, you know, the London and greater London area in the south were in fact in worse shape than, you know, some of the other you know, uh, countries that were joining in now uh, in the EU and the larger expansion and that people were benefiting from a mobility you know, of labour and they were not. They were actually being excluded from it. I mean, they weren't able to do the same things. They were not likely to go and, you know, be able to work abroad. Even, you know, the old idea of our Wiedersehen pets, you know, the, um, the, the sitcom about the workers going to Germany. They were displaced from there as well, not just inside of their own country. Now, that happens, you know, or at least appears to happen also in the United States on a huge scale. In this case, it's not that actually Mexicans and Hondurans and Guatemalans are coming in, you know, displacing Americans in factories in Michigan. But those factories in Michigan are moving to Mexico or they're moving to China, or at least their production is. And that has the same impact. And Trump sees that because he actually works in construction. 
This guy is, of course, incredibly privileged. He's from an elite, but he doesn't see himself as being part of that larger political or cultural or economic elites. He always feels himself at the outs because of you know, the nature of his own uh, branded, personalized family business. You know, we know, you know about all of his neuroses and his narcissism and his feeling that he is not taken seriously. In a way, he then starts to channel you know, those same feelings of grievances. He becomes the embodiment of larger grievances. And because he's engaged in construction, he employs construction workers. I mean, we also know that he employs an awful lot of illegal immigrants. And as we've learned later, he, he has a feel for this because he's in the working class, the blue collar areas of New York and everywhere else that he operates. And he sees it right away. And he's on he's not part of the party politics of either the Democratic or the Republican Party. He kind of self-aligns with the Republican Party, but he does that to basically usurp the political momentum. And I think, you know, the person he's most akin with is not really Johnson um, uh, in the British context, but Nigel Farage, you know, and others elsewhere, the alternative for Deutschland and other, you know, kind of uh, characters, the Marine Le Pens, who kind of have this feel of the kind of like the grassroots of politics and exploit it and take advantage of it. And that's really his genius. And he himself resents China because he resents the fact that America doesn't make stuff anymore. He's got a very 1980s perspective on things where Japan seemed to be usurping the United States. Now he sees China as coming into that role. And and basically Trump, you know, has his fingertips, at his fingertips, he has the feeling of that moment and he steps right into it. And he also knows how to talk the talk um, of the disaffected. Everything that we see in the rallies, you know, his affinity with, you know, the kind of a classic uh, blue collar working class sports, both in the UK and in the United States, slightly different in each case. But, you know, he, he has that kind of feeling of, you know, how to manipulate the same things that we talk about, about Putin doing. And Putin's base of support, just to, you know, wrap up here, is interestingly in the same kinds of the old heavy industries outside in the regions who don't feel their affinity with Moscow and St. Petersburg, even though he himself is from uh, St. Petersburg. He has that same feeling because he came from the outside, the margins in some respects of his own society of, uh, of what people uh, have uh, the most grievance about. And he plays into that perfectly at home, but also abroad. OK, well, I'm going I'm to take that opportunity to move move to Putin and, and Ukraine. Mark, you, you write about crises caused by the new age of connectivity, as you call it. Yet to many, Putin's war in Ukraine is a throwback to a kind of earlier early 20th century or even 19th century forms of geopolitics. So really a question for both of you, really, and maybe Mark goes first. Is the Ukraine war more a war of the past or is it indeed one of the present or indeed the emerging future, Mark, as you as you outline in your book? How do we understand this war, particularly when Putin himself has a very, or seems to be on some kind of demented historical mission, certainly if one tries to understand the essays that he publishes under his name. So Mark first, then Fiona. I mean, I, I defer to Fiona for her study of Putin's imaginaire, and uh, she's been living in, in his mind for a very long time and has been brilliantly explaining it to, to many of the rest of us. But I think that it is a kind of strange um, TARDIS that we're... <laughs> that we're in, he's somehow bestriding different centuries. It is both the kind of real throwback to earlier uh, projects. It's a post-imperial war as well. It's not that kind of uh, difficult to understand if you look at uh, other empires collapsing. But 
so much of, of, of what seems to have driven it, both in the, in the kind of immediate history um, and in terms of how it's being fought, does feel very 21st century. And in the book, I, I, I talk about my own kind of experience of going back and forth to Ukraine, starting uh, with the Orange Revolution um, and watching, you know, how the connections between Ukraine and the European Union fed this deep sense of anxiety in Moscow and in Putin's brain about Ukraine slipping away and how he tries to, to, to counter that by creating his own European Union, the Eurasian Economic Union. And in a, in a weird way, the battle between these two projects then prepares the ground for his completely unjustifiable uh, annexation of Crimea. But it was the failure of, of his attempt to, to wage a kind of classical, uh, to wage a kind of new connectivity war that led him to go back to, to territorial warfare. And it's, it's a really interesting project. I mean, I think, you know, you can sort of see both how a lot of the anxiety about identity and the fears which uh, emerged um, in Russia are uh, explained by these different types of connectivity and then you know the way that it's being fought is obviously it's a prototype for a, for a hybrid war the, the annexate what happened in 2014 in a way was the sort of absolute archetype of the, the hybrid war which other people have, have followed the way that we fought back through sanctions through entirely new kinds of economic warfare I think is is very interesting but also the way that they literally weaponized everything from information to migration and that they know that they're actually driving people out of their homes in a way could be the most powerful way of breaking the 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 will of of ukraine's allies the fact that there are you know several times as many ukrainians who've been forced out of their homes as syrians during the um the, who not who've been forced out of their homes but who've come to europe uh, during the so-called refugee crisis of 2015. I think it's, it's part of the way that this is being fought. So it's a, it's a, it's a weird kind of postmodern medley of, of different things, but I think it's very 21st century, even though there are echoes of, of, of past periods. Okay, Fiona, an old war, a new war, a combination of the two? I think Mark's, um, I mean, this is great, the TARDIS war um, for all the Doctor Whom Who fans out there. I mean, I, I think you've got to patent that very quickly there, Mark, That's um, because it's, it's, it's a fantastic image of where we are, because there's medieval aspects of this, you know, kind of, uh, as you said, I mean, it, Putin in a way is dragging us back to the Middle Ages. You know, of all of these, you know, uh, various claims that he's made to Ukrainian territory, I mean, he's gone back even earlier, 988, you know, the Christianization of the lands of Rus. And, you know, he's taken us back to so many periods. It really is like the TARDIS back and forth. And we never know where we are from, you know, one day to the next about what historical reference he's going to, um, you know, pull out of, um, uh, you know, his, his, his hat here. And, and I think that that point that you make about the uh, connectivity uh, war here, too, I mean, just like the Eurasian Union was set up uh, in that tug of war that you describe, you know, so very clearly um, in uh, the, the, the new forward, um, you know, with the European Union, Putin sees NATO in the same way. I mean, we've got Mearsheimer and all kinds of people out there, even the Pope, you know, kind of saying Russia was provoked, it was all NATO expansion. That pretense is gone, just to be very clear. Putin hasn't really mentioned this, just to be, you know, kind of... Uh, crystal clear here for for quite some time i mean there's a, occasional references to nato but really you know he saw nato in the same way an alternate source of connectivity for ukraine and i mean we always see you know uh, nato as being kind of set up yes uh, in during the cold war period an opposition to russia as a means of defense 
but we saw it as collective security. It wasn't meant to wage war apart from in extremists. We were, it was meant to and be one of the many mechanisms we had onto this, the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe in the 1970s as a mechanism to keep that state of peace, you know, that we thought that we wanted to be in. Although, of course, in the Cold War, those uh, boundaries between war and peace were very much blurred uh, in the same way that you're describing, you know, in the book, in the, the present uh, uh, state or the you know, most recent state that we've been in. But we saw NATO in a very different way from how Russia saw it. I mean, if you think about the Warsaw Treaty Organization during the Cold War, yes, it was compulsion that uh, forced the membership there. And Putin assumes that the same mechanisms were used in NATO, even though we saw that the Turks who joined NATO 70 years ago, you know, in 1952, did so because of the threat of invasion uh, from the Soviet Union. The countries that were the first movers uh, to uh, join uh, NATO and pushing for it in the uh, 1990s were in fact the three countries that had been invaded by their so-called allies uh, in the Warsaw Treaty Organization, Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. And one might also argue Germany, and then um, you know uh, other countries as well, feeling that pressure. Now, Poland, of course, wasn't fully um, invaded by uh, the Red Army uh, during its uh, membership in the Warsaw Treaty Organization, but it did invade itself under pressure uh, with General Jaruzelski imposing martial law. So. Uh, the, the problem that we have is that Putin has always dictated or, or given uh, a vision of NATO imposed on it as being a diktat uh, and the EU being the same. Uh, and at various points, they've said they didn't care about whether um, Ukraine joined the European Union, but they absolutely did, because as Mark points out, it's an alternate form of connectivity in the economic space with some security dimensions. And NATO is very much that in the military space. And you know, Russia then sets up um, the CSTO, its own kind of poor man's version of the Warsaw Treaty Organization with countries like Armenia and Belarus and Kyrgyzstan, you know, and it's clearly not a, a major military alliance. But that was also an effort, you know, trying to pull Ukraine in that direction, trying to push the Ukrainians to disassociate in some way from any form of other connection. Because Putin sees connections as control, precisely what Marx says. He talked about recently Ukraine as a colony, that there's only a handful of sovereign countries and others are under control. The sovereign countries are the United States, maybe, uh, but it's definitely China and, uh, and Russia. And he doesn't see the European Union as any kind of sovereign entity. It is just all about mechanisms. And, and when, where does the UK fit into that as a colony? Well, the UK doesn't really fit in, to be frank, to be blatantly obvious and, and, and honest. And even Germany didn't, because yeah. early on when Germany had a presidency of the European Union, Putin tested to see whether that meant that Germany was the dominant country in Europe and decided that it was not. And then he writes off the European Union. So it's irre irrelevant whether for Putin, whether the UK has left the EU or not. He does not see the European Union as a separate entity here. And that's, you know, part of the thing we're grappling with is somebody who sees connectivity as control. And so as Mark says in the book, we have to find other ways of figuring out how to deal with this. That's terrific. Uh, Mark, do you want a little coda to that? I do want to bring some questions in. Mark, recently we ran the interview in the States with um, Sergei Karaganov, Professor Karaganov, the former Kremlin advisor. It, it was a fascinating interview which got picked up all over the world and it, it travelled. And he said, actually, it's the way to understand this war. It's actually ultimately a war against Western expansionism. In other words, the Ukraine war. Do you, what do you think of that analysis? 
I think certainly in their minds, they see they're worried about the attractive power of the West and the fact that Ukraine has has been slowly changing its orientation through its trade, through its desire to to join NATO and other things. Obviously, one of the reasons it's been doing that is because of the way it's been attacked by um, by Russia that's been waging war uh, against uh, Ukrainians for for much of the last. A couple of decades, whether overtly or covertly in different forms. So I think they're kind of partly authors of, 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 of that movement, but it's definitely a central part of, of what they think, I think. OK, I've got a question here from Andre. He says, starting with the opening statement of peace being a relatively new invention, he goes on to say, is the age of unpeace really that new or is it a different term for the Cold War? Hmm. So in other words, is it, is it as new as you think it is? For me, what is new is the intensity of our connections with the rest of the world. So like sanctions, a lot of the things we're talking about have been around for millennia. You can go back to the Peloponnesian water sea sanctions. But what you have now through our digital connectivity are economies that are far more bound up with each other, information environments that are bound up with each other. So you can do enormous damage at relatively low costs to, to other players. During the Cold War, we had no contact with the Soviet Union. There were almost no overlap between our economy and the Soviet economy. So it was just not possible to do some of the sorts of things that we're doing now. And I think there's both means- that What about Soviet oil? It wasn't weaponized for various reasons. And I'll let Fiona talk about that. Fiona, you go. Yeah, look, I mean, I agree with uh, Mark there. And in fact, I mean, it is absolutely true that, you know, embargoes, sacking of granaries, you know, with the sack of Rome, you know, the, the destruction. I mean, these kinds of, a lot of the things that we're seeing now that Putin is using as tools and we're using as tools, you know, financial, um, you know, weapons, um, you know, have been uh, used before. But I think Mark is actually spot on. And in fact, I mean, you, if you think about the United States stance on um, Soviet oil and gas, the United States was always warning, you know, a bit like Cassandra or, you know, some perverse kind of a Greek chorus in, um, uh, you know, the theatre, that this is going to turn out badly the more that Europe uh, became entangled with energy from the Soviet Union. And, you know, dating back to the 60s and 70s, the United States stance on this was, was pretty clear. Now, of course, that was in a Cold War context of not wanting to have uh, any leverage on the part of the Soviet Union. But of course, you know, as Mark lays out in the book, you know, the, the, the decision-making on the part of, you know, Europeans and Germans in particular, uh, was that interdependence would be mutually beneficial and would prevent war and would actually change the nature of the, the relationship. Whereas the United States, probably because of its own use of gunboat diplomacy and uh, weaponization uh, of, you know, kind of degrees of interdependency, uh, you know, during some of its uh, more recent history, was pretty cognizant of the fact that this, you know, could be turned against. So that period of vulnerability does start to emerge from the 70s, you know, onwards. But, you know, Mark is right that, you know, for the Russians and from uh, the, there was actually a disincentive until you get to someone like Putin, who, who likes to think that if you have an instrument, you have a weapon, you should always be ready to use it. A bit like, you know, the kind of point that I, I think you also, you know, make in the book about what's the point of having these lovely armies, uh, you know, if you if you can't, uh, if you can't uh, use them. Uh, I think that was the Madeleine Albright, uh, you know, kind of uh, quote uh, to Colin Powell at one point. That's what Putin thinks. If I've got a nuclear weapon, if I've got, you know, grain, or I've got this or that, I've got oil or I've got gas, why can't I use it as a weapon? Well, we hope he doesn't use nuclear weapons. The recent NATO summit in Madrid gave a sense of a kind of revitalised alliance, a more cohesive alliance, as a consequence of um, the war in Ukraine. 
Schultz in Germany has, has used this, this interesting word Zeitenbender to describe this kind of new era of international politics. Are we seeing a revitalized NATO mark? And Fiona, or is it, is it illusory? What do we think? I mean, there's no question that the NATO has been gone from brain death to being seen as existential for many people across the continent. And with Sweden and Finland choosing to join it, if you look at what's happening in Germany, I think there's been a, a kind of profound change to the way that Germans think about their security and their politics. Um, but at the same time, you know, in the kind of medium to longer term, there are important questions about um, how the US domestic politics is going to develop, how long Americans are going to be willing to, to carry on playing the outsized role in European security that they have in, in recent decades. Donald Trump, I think, is not alone in questioning why 350 million Americans should spend so much money on defending 500 million Europeans who are quite well off and, and should take more responsibility for their own security. So I suspect that as the American gaze uh, moves further east and focuses on the Indo-Pacific, um, Europeans are going to either have to step up and take much more responsibility for their own security, or um, they could find themselves having to make all sorts of very difficult compromises with, with other great powers within the European space. But I think that there are really big, I spend a lot of my time in Germany and in other countries, and I, I do think that in Britain, we sometimes underestimate how big these kind of changes are in terms of how they're looking at things. And I think that after a few, after a while of, of investing 2% in their economies, the nature of NATO will change as well. I think it will go from being a sort of Pax Americana to hopefully a more balanced relationship where Europeans take much more responsibility for, for their own security in this part of the world. And um, it will be a different kind of, of situation. And obviously the relationship with Russia is going to be very different from the way that it's been for the last few decades. I think the illusion that we can have a cooperative security order with Russia is not something that will return in two, three, four, five years. I don't think there'll be a reset while Putin's in the in the Kremlin. So it'll be a very different sort of relationship going forward based on unpeace, based on rearmament. And I think the peace dividend is going to, going to end, which is something which is very sad, actually, um, for, for many Europeans. Yeah, so if you're in a NATO, and then maybe a, a few words on how long we think Putin may remain in the um, Kremlin. Hard to make those predictions, of course. Right. Um, well, there's a, just a couple of quick points on um, uh, what Mark has said here, just just to add a little bit um, uh, more dimensions here, because I, I agree with you know what Mark has said. I mean, one of the things is paying very close attention to what the Finns said when they wanted to join um, NATO, which, of course, is you know is, is a huge step for Finland after this very careful balancing act for, for so long, and also for Sweden after 200 years of um, you know vowed neutrality. And I think the Swedes were more following the Finns' lead, you know, because the, the two of them saw their security as intertwined. But the Finns don't, you know, kind of also, as you know, Mark's suggesting here, want to jump because it's Pax Americana. You know, if you think about Finland, Finland's always had a really robust territorial defence. Sweden and Finland are both really bringing something major to NATO, which I think will change uh, the, the way that NATO looks. It's not that they want America to defend them. It's because that they feel that the European security mechanisms have all failed and they don't want NATO necessarily to go back to the past. They're not, it's not, this is not a TARDIS effect, you know, using Mark's metaphor here, going back to the Cold War. They want to use NATO um, as a, a robust entity that, you know, still actually has capacity as a platform for building 
some other new security mechanisms. I think they'd agree with Mark that this is not a new order, but in that, you know, kind of thinking back to the 1970s and the Helsinki process, they know that that's at an end, that those old mechanisms of keeping the peace have gone and we need something new. And NATO is what we've got, and let's think about how we build on it. So I, I do think that we're under the um, gun, so to speak, here of the Russian guns, of thinking about how we use NATO in a different way. It's not just a new zest for an old life, but how Finland, Sweden, and others, and as Mark says, if people are you're really thinking more seriously about their security, build something new forward. And I think in that regard, China is going to be part of that calculation. China spoke out against NATO in that rather you know shocking. Uh, joint statement uh, between Xi and Putin on February 4th at the margins of the Beijing Olympics. China is worried that there will be the expansion of NATO-like security arrangements into the Asia-Pacific. And in fact, in some respects, that might seem inevitable because many NATO members, not just um, the United States, but also Canada, and then we also have France and the UK, you know, have interests in the region. China has made now its hand very clear uh, in, in Europe. Uh, seeing itself more as a security actor by those steps. And if we, we have a big question mark about, you know, kind of what China's role was in facilitating, you know, the war in Ukraine percolating now through Europe as well. So I think we're going to have to factor in something very different. Now, Putin in the Kremlin, just very quickly, yeah. 2024, we should be thinking ahead to that. Actually, Putin is supposed to put himself up for re-election in 2024, in March which is before the US um, election. It also happens to be the election in the same time frame in Ukraine, you know, which in this wartime you know, capacity also has a different shape. So I think that we have to think very carefully about you know, how Russia is looking at that moment. And 2024, whether Putin likes it or not as an inflection point, I think he was trying to get ahead of it you know, with the war in Ukraine as well. Thanks, Fiona. I'm gonna, I, this is a, such a huge question. I, I may not even get you to answer it, but um, Ronan says, one of our hopes has been that a global challenge like climate change might in some sense be a binding collective challenge that will bring bigger powers together. Do you think that the age of unpeace is also an age that will be less able to tackle climate change? Huge question mark. And you've got about three minutes to answer. Yeah, I, I think that's basically what I would uh, agree with, because I think we realize that we're not in a positive some world where everyone's in it together and where our common survival matters more than how individual countries do. Instead, it's very much a zero sum world where people are trying to weaponize all of these big problems. And that's one of the, the big disappointments of the last few years that we, we hoped that uh, big things like COVID and climate change would unite us all. And instead, countries have been happy to to use them in their sort of power play against each other and that is very scary and makes it me much less optimistic that we're going to solve climate change in a cooperative way one of the good things about the competition is it could drive us to develop technologies more quickly as every country tries to have the best green technologies but on the downside expecting people to to bind themselves up with international law to to have cooperative solutions i think is much harder at the moment because everyone's trying to see how they can get ahead and do other countries down all the great powers are okay mark and and fiona um we've entered this dark period a new age of great power rivalry indeed an age of unpeace do you think any optimism uh, for us or indeed hopefully yes but i do actually have the same optimism that mark does at the end of the book and I mean, I just encourage people to read to the end you know, because, you know, that there are, you know, some solutions here, but I mean, they depend on all of us, honestly. 
I mean, it's more of kind of, uh, as you're you know, suggesting there, Mark, and I came to the same conclusion in my own work, that it has to be, you know, lower levels of cooperation. We're not going to be expecting things, you know, from the top. So it's kind of, and this is what Ukraine is about. Look, this is a whole country that's mucked in there, all hands on deck in a moment of existential crisis. Uh, Putin's war is being, you know, kind of still waged, you know, from on high, using people from the margins. It's not a kind of all um, state effort at this point, thank God. Um, although, you know, that might still happen. But Mark's solutions are all about all of us having agency and working at different levels uh, of uh, collectivity I and mean, collective action based on, you know, consent and consultation. It's not all pie in the sky, just if anybody's still thinking that. I mean, I think that Mark, you know, does sketch out there, you know, some ideas for us to think about and uh, to work on. It's just, you know, that's the next book, I guess, right, Mark, about, you know, how do we, you know, do all of this in this age of unpeace now that you've, you know, analysed the situation here, you know, very clearly, you've hinted at some um, uh, suggestions and, you know, we've all got to work on them. Indeed. I always make a distinction between optimism and hopefulness, but that's a note of hope, I think, on which to end this fascinating discussion. Mark's The Age of Unpeace is available everywhere um, through the tech platforms or a very good bookshop. So do, I do urge you to read it, think about it, engage with the ideas in it. Thanks for joining our discussion. That was the discussion that we had to launch the paperback of the book. We hope that you enjoyed listening. If you did, why don't you head to whatever platform you use to download the podcast from and subscribe to it. And while you're there, it'd be great if you could leave us a positive review and a five-star rating. But for now, from Fiona Hill, Jason Cowley and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Marlene Riedlund.